0: Hi, I'm Teresa and this is Margit podcast, which means the gut feeling. And in this podcast, I interview people that I find are really inspiring because they dare being themselves and they dare to drive change in this world. Because I truly believe that when we see ourselves as impactful, that we matter, there's really hope into changing this world into a world that we really want to live in and we can also create the lives that we want to live and i also hope that you can see how you matter and that you can impact your life so i hope you enjoy welcome to my person slash the gut feeling podcast Thank you. It's, uh, we are just talking about that. It's, it's a bit strange having a Norwegian name and then, yeah, saying it in, in English. Yeah. Let's dive into this. Do you want to tell me a bit about yourself, your story and how you ended up where you are today?
1: Absolutely. Um, it's a long journey how I ended up here today, <laughs> but, uh. So I'm an American emergency physician. Emergency medicine is a specialty that we don't have that exact thing here in Norway uh, just yet. So it's a specialty of um, where you do everything that's an emergency. A mm. little bit of uh, you know all the different specialties, but just the the most severe parts of them. But that includes emergency psychiatry. So I started actually go back to when I was in college. I I studied physical anthropology, which was the um, evolution, uh, you know, primate evolution. And I was very interested in the evolution of of, uh, emotions, Mm. particularly positive emotions. So I did a thesis on the evolution of laughter. Mm. So what was the adaptive reason for us to have laughter? Mm. Uh, And I was tickling chimpanzees at the the University of Texas in Austin 20-something years ago. So I was always interested in, you know, I started anthropology and the study of humans, how we work, uh, why we do the things we do, and particularly emotions. and very early on, I was, uh, you know, drawn to the brain, how the brain works and uh, why we do the things we do. So I started a uh, MD, PhD in neuroscience and uh, did did that very shortly. Just one class <laughs> when I realized that if that's what you're going to do, you're going to end up kind of chopping up rat brains uh, mm. in a lab um, and I like the human interaction but but very early on uh, i about twenty years ago, I did a research study the first after the first time I came to norway in um on um, winter depression mm-hmm. and um, that was sort of triggered by my first experience in Norway. The first time I came, my wife is from Trondheim. I had been studying in Uh, Russia studying Russian literature and living in Moscow for the winter and reading Dostoevsky and then I come to Trondheim and there's no sun no I mean I literally did not see a ray of sunshine the whole time and sleeping late reading Dostoevsky and I just I got this touch of like what it it might be like to have winter depression so anyways did a study with a Norwegian, um, psychiatrist named Ode Linyard uh, and then went on to um, end up doing emergency medicine because I like a lot of different things. I like all parts of mm-hmm. what we are as humans mm-hmm. and then did that for about 20 years. Um, uh, you know, just working in the emergency department and it, what happens is you get to this place where Um, you know, you, you feel like there's this river of suffering Mm -hmm. and you're a guy with a bucket and you're taking the water out of the river, but it just keeps coming. And, and it's important that you're there, Mm. but you're just doing this very linear process of somebody's heart stops, you restart it, somebody is broken, you fix them and you're not doing anything to change the really the trajectory of the river or, you know, to fix the leaking boat.
0: Nothing preventative.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I was looking for something um different to do. I was sort of forced uh, when I started, when I first moved here, I, because Norway didn't have emergency medicine as a specialty, I couldn't work here. Mm. So I did a master's in public health, international public health, thinking that that was a way to actually get involved with um you know changing the the system the structure in some way and and having that more exponential sustainable impact on 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 health in general and there it was um you know in studying looking at global uh, health i was sort of shocked at how big of a problem mental health is Depression is the leading cause of disability in the world. And on a yearly basis, about a million people kill themselves, which is more people than die in all wars, all natural disasters combined.
0: A million people? A
1: million people. And that's who killed themselves, right? Mm. So for all those people that killed themselves... There's like ten times as many people tried to kill themselves, and then there's ten times that who want to kill themselves but didn't try. Mm. So like the the burden of suffering is just massive, and that's just depression.
0: And then there's all of the people who's not there but still suffer a lot.
1: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and I mean, it there's... takes
0: a lot. I mean, yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of lot of suffering.
1: Exactly. This we have a serious problem, and if I'm gonna focus on something master's thesis to write, uh, while I was, uh, I thought, well, something in mental health makes sense. And, um, around that time I got, uh, an email from my dad. There was this article in the New York times about these, uh, Norwegian psychologist and neuroscientists up at NTNU, Paul Johansson and Terry Krebs, who wrote an article about, uh, a meta analysis of using LSD as uh, for uh, treatment of uh, addiction of alcohol addiction. So I thought, oh, that's kind of that was the New York Times. Yeah, it was actually up by the New York Times. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I contacted them, and uh, that was sort of how I initially started thinking, well, okay, what's new in this field? What you know, there's really, I mean, there really hasn't been anything new in you know treatment of depression since the ssris in the 1980s so i thought well this is kind of exciting and then you know looking into the research um both the the psychedelic renaissance of of doing research on uh, some of the agents that we studied in the 1950s 60s uh so you know that's that's ongoing right now um but also came across ketamine which is um medicine that's been approved since 1970 and is a powerful psychedelic and also has powerful antidepressant effects and can be helpful for people with PTSD, anxiety disorders, and addiction. So yeah, that's how I got into it and then started a ketamine clinic uh, for the treatment of mental health disorders in, in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where, which is where I grew up, uh, where my family is from. In 2016, and literally from, you know, the first day of treating people there just was blown away by how how powerful uh, the treatment was and how, you know, most of the treatments that we have, there's, you know, one, they're not very effective um, or they're only effective for a small percentage of people, not Mm -hmm. everybody there's a lot of people who don't uh have uh good enough response to the available treatments that we have uh and the other thing is that um, many of the treatments that do work just take a long time there takes months or years of psychotherapy or or months and months for antidepressants to work uh, for the people that it they do work for And um, these medicines are incredibly rapid. So like ketamine, for example, is, um, you know, about two thirds of people who have severe depression, who have tried everything, have a response within hours to days. So, you know, sometimes a couple hours after their first treatment are in remission from depression that they had suffered for 10, 20 years. And, and it's just amazing to see that transformation. And, uh, you know, Norway is a, we have a good, well, we have a pretty good public healthcare system and things should be available to people. That was what I wanted to do was implement it. So I spoke to the the head of the Norwegian Psychiatric Association at that time, Ulrich Malt. I spoke to the health directorate. Uh, I talked to the Folk Health Institute. I said, look, I've been doing this for, uh, at that time, it was about a year or so. I've seen hundreds of people just, you know, lives transformed uh, doing this treatment. Here's the evidence. We've done all these trials. Uh, and I'll set up a, you know, we'll make guidelines, we'll we'll do a committee, we'll implement this, we'll do a pilot project, whatever, however you want to do it. But there's a treatment here that can help people. And uh at that time it was kind of, you know, I'm this crazy American emergency <laughs> doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh so there was uh really no interest in they were like, nah, <laughs> no, thank you, you know.
0: You think it had to do with the relationship with psychedelics in Norway in general at that point?
1: No, you know, I mean this was ketamine which is, you know, it, it's a it's an approved medicine. It's used in every hospital in Norway. It's been approved since 1973 in Norway. Uh, but for so- this usage? No, it's a uh, anesthetic. Yeah, um, yeah, I know. Yeah, but uh, yeah.
0: do you think that people were more skeptical because it was going to be used in a different uh, yeah, method? To
1: some extent. Uh, but so what I was saying is that the, with ketamine, it does have powerful psychedelic properties, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have the baggage of, you know, we're not, mm-hmm. it, of LSD or psilocybin uh, or ecstasy you know something that's you know hasn't had approved use in medicine for a long time Mm. you know uh, some of the skepticism was yeah because it was off-label so a different indication how could an anesthetic be helpful for mental health disorders Mm. but you know in in terms of that off-label use is 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 normal medicine so Mm. um but i think the the biggest problem with the psychiatric association at that time was really just that unfortunately most people um had had not read the literature this was something that we had started good clinical trials on this in the year 2000 so this is 23 year old the mm. uh, you know data and since then there's been tons of trials. We've had thousands of people in randomized controlled trials, but unfortunately I would say that, you know, the average psychiatrist in Norway, you know, they learn what they learn in medical school and, and, and the training and kind of stick to what the guidelines say. Uh, we have, you know, guidelines for the treatment of depression that are put out by the academic uh, societies and And the problem with guidelines is they're usually about 10 years out of date. Mm. You know, medicine changes, new things come out all the time. and
0: In good and and bad ways, I guess, because I mean, in US especially, you know, you have a lot of big stories where, you know, drugs have been used in the wrong way and they haven't done like good research and people have become sick and so... In absolutely. in certain situations, yeah. you know, they, they shouldn't have been approved and, you know, there's a lot of money behind. And in other situations, maybe the incentive to get something approved is necessarily there because actually in this situation, what I read and heard is that the side effects are actually quite small in mm. comparison to other medicines. Yeah. So in a way, it's less profitable.
1: <laughs> or, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the entire model kind of goes against the pharmaceutical model because mm. it's a treatment where you know hopefully you have a few number of treatments and then you have you know really positive transformation mm. and as opposed to a pill that you take every day that you have to buy every day and keep in you know put in your body yeah and the fact that it's uh that it's generic so there there is no way for a pharmaceutical company to make money off of it.
2: Mm.
0: So how is it with ketamine treatment? Are the results long-term?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Everybody asks this. It's a hard question to answer because People are different. Human beings are very different. Um, mm-hmm. and even people with the same diagnosis are very different. We're different genetically. We're, you know, we we have uh, uh very different responses to medicines, but also that the response and the durability of the responses is not only dependent on the medicine, but a number of factors. Uh so there's there's genetic factors, there's um, environmental and social factors. For example, you know, somebody who has recurrent, what we call endogenous depression, something that, you know, they had a perfect life and everything is going for them. They've got a supportive family, they've got good work, they've got a great social environment, but they have these episodes of deep depression that are sort of driven by this genetic cycle you know they may require something different than you know somebody with depression who just has what we call like a reactive depression maybe they something really bad happens in their life and they have a deep depression and whether you require continued treatment is dependent on a lot of different things mm. and that so it's not just the medicine itself but That being said, there's basically three different groups of of people. So about 70% of people will have a response. So that's just a single treatment. You know, one group where people that are, you know, back on their feet and they don't really have any need for the treatment anymore. There's another group of people that do it as needed, maybe things are going really well. And then six months later, they kind of fall back into some negative patterns and and do a booster treatment uh, we call it. And then there's people who it's a really good treatment, but it's a treatment that they need where, you know, somebody with chronic depression for 30 years in and out of the hospital, older Mm. people that are a little more stuck in those patterns, where they have a really positive effect, but they can benefit from coming back once a month and doing a treatment mm,
0: depends a bit how deep it goes,
1: yeah, yeah I mean you know the the severity and the or and the chronicity of disease uh so people with more chronic um uh depression it's it's harder
2: to treat, mm. you know
1: yeah.
0: Can I ask, because I must admit I uh, I read a lot about uh, Gabo Mate and uh, he mainly talks about psilocybin and MDMA and especially related to PTSD and trauma. To what extent is ketamine used? Is it a trauma kind of treatment or is it more, um, how does it work? <laughs>
1: mm, mm, yeah, yeah. So first, maybe I should just go into a little bit about how it works, and yeah. then we can go back to trauma. So, um, ketamine actually shares some of the mechanisms, uh, so it has some similarities with the classic psychedelics. Uh, so things like uh, psilocybin from plain soap, or LSD, or DMT, and which is in ayahuasca. So, if we start at the Sort of lowest level in the brain, one of the mechanisms is called neuroplasticity. It uh, stimulates uh, new growth of branches and connections between the brain cells. And your brain is plastic, it changes all the time. It's kind of like a, you know, like a muscle. You use one part and it gets big, and the part you're not using kind of disappears. And over time, um, you know, People can get into negative patterns of thinking, feeling, behavior. And we'd like to use this metaphor of the Robin Carhart-Harris uh, from Imperial College uh, uses this metaphor, which is, you know, if you think of the brain as a as a mountain with snow over, covered in snow, you know, when you're a child, everything is open, all the possibilities are there. And over time, you take these tracks in the snow again and again and again. And some of them are positive and some of them are negative or maladaptive. And and you can get, you know, these deep tracks, uh, this rigidity, uh, you know, cognitive, emotional rigidity where you get stuck in these patterns. Mm. And by stimulating neuroplasticity, which is something that happens like rapidly. So within 24 hours after a dose of ketamine, you have literally you can see in a microscope new buds branches forming in in, in the wow. brain. And that's like a fresh layer of snow. Mm. So it doesn't take away anything. Mm. It doesn't change anything other than giving you more possibilities. You know, you could still take that negative track. You could still feel you know, a negative feeling or something stressful, you feel stress. Something is sad, you feel it. But you don't need to be stuck in it. You can go to the right or the left. So People experience neuroplasticity as um, flexibility, possibility, resilience, um, you know, feeling more like a bamboo in the wind when something negative comes. You're, you sort of bend a little bit, but then you you know, strong and flexible. And that's a natural process if you, if you learn a new language, for example, you actually, you know, sprout mm. new connections between the brain cells that allow you to speak Chinese, for example. So that's one mechanism. And there's also a shift, uh, and this is something that also the psychedelics do, which is to temporarily disrupt uh, the default mode network, which is a, a number of different structures that is involved in the wandering mind, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, uh, which is important for us to do, but people with chronic stress, they're kind of stuck in that, the mm. rumination, going over things again and again and again, you know, being stuck in these thought loops. And and the opposite of that is is a flow state when you're in the present moment. If you're truly in a flow state, it's actually really difficult to be depressed or anxious. You know, when you're just you lose yourself listening to music when you're you're reading a good book when you're dancing when you're with another person laughing and there's um, another one which is a called the negative reward center which is uh, like our punishment center in our brain many people are familiar with the positive reward you 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 eat some food you take a drug and you get uh, dopamine and serotonin the negative reward center is a part of your brain that just punishes you. Hmm. So it's it's adaptive. It's a way that we learn from things that didn't work out. We if we do something and it we something bad happens and we sort of feel punished and depressed and then we adapt our behavior. But for a lot of people, when uh, particularly when that happens, when there's a lot of stress or insecurity or trauma early on in life you can you know instead of turning on or off this punishment center just kind of that insecurity of knowing when to turn on or just it just stays on so it's like the thermostat in your brain is just set a little too cold and that's something that's temporarily reset So during the ketamine experience, it's kind of like a dreamlike state mm-hmm. where you're awake, but you're you have altered perception, altered cognition, altered sense of space and time. And there's a it's an out-of-body experience. So so the doses that we use in the treatment of depression and and trauma, you know, you're not really aware that you're laying in a in an office, you, you actually sort of maybe feel like you're floating in space or in another dimension. It's actually really low dose compared to what, what we use in anesthesia, but it's a much higher dose than what if somebody were to use it recreationally. Mm. So in that space, it, there's the potential to occasion a lot of therapeutic content. And, you know, ketamine just opens the door. And Mm -hmm. the unconscious and what, you know, what the experience is, is all comes up from the person, whatever Mm -hmm. comes up, it can be, you know, it's a bit unpredictable, like, like a dream. You never really know what's going to happen in that dream, but there are some themes that can be really therapeutic for people. So, so one is just to take a break from being stuck in your head all the time, kind of like a a deep meditation or a, you know, taking a spa for your brain, just just getting out of these loops that we're stuck in all the time. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, you can have uh, uh, new perspectives, insights into things that are going on in your life, things that have happened in the past. You know, when you're in an altered state of consciousness, uh, you have the ability to look at things from a totally different perspective. So, you know, that rigidity that we have when we're kind of stuck, this is how it always is for me. This is, you know, this is who I am. This is what happens when I do that. That can be loosened up temporarily when you're in a totally different state Mm -hmm. of consciousness and, oh, maybe it could actually be like this, or Mm -hmm. I never looked at it from that angle. Um, You could call it a dissociative or out-of-body experience where you can get an observer effect or a third person view on yourself, your Mm -hmm. history, which is somewhat similar to mindfulness or deep meditation. And that's uh, what we call the overview effect that comes from astronauts when they go up to space and they look down at the planet. And for the first time they know that there's all these problems there, there's war, there's politics, there's suffering, but in the big picture, there's a form of like acceptance and peace that comes uh, with taking a step back and looking at the stars and the other planets and the galaxies.
0: Is this something that happens while they're on the ketamine, or is it because you also have a, a therapeutic follow-up
1: afterwards? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a good point. Traditionally, so you know, since the 1950s, there's been Kind of two models of using psychedelics, one is called psychedelic and one is psycholytic and the psychedelic model is is you know a relatively high dose and and there's an internal process where you know the the person is primarily you know it's their experience mm. um, and and there's supportive care mm. uh if needed mm. but it's it's really the the people around are to just give support. Um, make and, you feel safe. Yeah, 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 and and make it a safe, uh, positive experience mm-hmm. and to get the most out of it. Psycholytic is where there's actually active uh, interaction with mm-hmm. the therapist, like during the session. Mm-hmm. And you could do that with psychedelics and ketamine. Uh, but what we've found is that uh, the best effect that we can get is actually when you do the high dose, so when it's uh, mm-hmm. psychedelic. You know, when we started doing research 20 years ago, there was a medical model where, you know, you would come in, you get a shot of ketamine, you know, nobody really talks to you. Like, here's the medicine, boom, you get the ketamine, and then, all right, see you later. Mm. Now, when I started, you know, in the U.S. in 2016, I kind of started with that model where I, I worked with psychologists and psychiatrists that did follow-up, mm. um, but the the treatment was really just, okay, the medicine and they have this experience and then they do the follow-up elsewhere. What we found over uh, the years, it, it looks like you get a better effect and more importantly, like more durable positive effects. If you can leverage the biologic mechanisms and augment them with... Uh, care with, with psychotherapy. So there's, um, you know, preparing the person really well for the experience and setting some intentions and then, you know, them having the experience and then having time afterwards with, you know, a psychologist or doctor there the entire time throughout the entire experience. And then, you know, psychotherapy isn't actually particularly effective for moderate to severe depression. Um, But if you, if you think of it like anabolic steroids, like if you're so, you're so weak, you're bedridden, and then, um, you know, you have a personal trainer that's like, oh, okay, lift these weights and you're laying there on the bed. Like, what are you talking about? I can understand it intellectually. I can't do that. Um, but then you get anabolic steroids and suddenly your muscles are all big and strong. Mm -hmm. That's the perfect time to do, to have a personal trainer, Mm -hmm. right? to help you not, you know, to both continue doing the good things that keep you strong and healthy and to not make the mistakes that make you fall down and and get stuck in those ruts that you were stuck in. So that's kind of how psychotherapy is used in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, both, you know, improving the treatment that you get but also, you know, leveraging all the positive effects and then help you have more long-standing positive Durable change in your life.
0: Yeah, I think that's it's quite hard on the body. I don't know how it is mm. with ketamine treatment. If it's kind of like that, it that the patient has to do some work, or is it immediate? And they feel that they can just kind of continue on this new path.
1: Uh, it really depends on the person, mm. um, yeah, and what they are working through. And but yeah, there's. I think it was Houston Smith who said uh, this concept of going from a, a state to a trait mm. so you know one thing is to have an experience and to have this you know new state of uh insight or meaningful experience that you have the other is to to actually implement that into yeah. your life and how do you take the nuggets there that are yeah. important that can be helpful and you know one thing is to to see it mm. to to have the insight but but to to make that part of who you are and uh, remember it and implement it that that's uh, a lot of work you know the, the clinic I opened in Oslo after the public uh, system didn't uh, wasn't interested in implementing it in the uh, back in 2018 so I started axon clinic and and I sort of went through the process of over some years of slowly integrating more and more psychotherapy, having psychologists work, you know, more integrated in, in the clinic. And then a couple of years ago, we joined forces with Awaken, which Awaken Life Sciences, a group of uh, researchers and clinicians in the UK. And we then sort of went full into the ketamine assisted psychotherapy. So, uh, so since that time, and then over the last couple of years, that's what we've, we've been doing is, um, is, you know, always having a, there's, you know, so we're a multidisciplinary team, but there's always a, you're with the same psychologist or doctor from, you know, before the treatment, during the treatment, after the treatment in between the treatment you know, coming back and, and the follow up. So there's mm. a lot of, you know, full continuity of, uh, of uh, the whole process. Mm. Yeah.
0: I also see with uh, psychedelics being more liberated in Norway that it's also popping up, how do you say? Uh,
1: Recreationally.
0: Yeah. How do you think that that impacts the, the usage in therapeutical settings?
1: Well, you know, I think so. So right now, the, you know, the only approved uh, medicine is ketamine. We are very close to approving MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder and a couple more years after that, possibly psilocybin for depression. But, you know, the best case scenario is, you know, we have enough data for ketamine, it works. Not only mm. does it work, but it's mm. actually the most effective treatment. Mm. It was just a huge study um, in uh, with Harvard and Yale and mm. the U.S. and a number of other hospitals showing that um, ketamine was just as effective as what's called the gold standard for the worst, uh, most severe depression, which mm. is electroshock therapy. So we have a medicine that's just as powerful, as much less side effects, and most people would prefer to try something mm. like ketamine before doing electroshock therapy. So the best scenario is that you have that it's available in the public system for people that mm. need it, that it's available in private clinics that would per- for people that would prefer it to do it in a different setting uh, than a hospital. You know, so that it's available to everybody mm. um, that needs it. If you're dealing with an expert in, you know, mental health disorders, as opposed mm. to some random guy that uh, did a couple, you know, courses and and became uh, a shaman or something. Mm. I think mm. the reason
0: why I am asking is because of what happened in the 70s and 80s and where actually the research of using this therapeutically was on the rise and then uh, oh, the recra- uh, recreational usage mm. ruined for the therapeutical and how it was put out in media. It, it wasn't totally correct of what actually psychedelics do. Mm. And uh, and of course, like, do you think that there's a risk that the recreational usage can create setbacks in the same way that it did us in the 70s and 80s? Uh,
1: absolutely, 100%. Mm. Uh, and that's something, you know, all of us who are working in this field are really aware of uh, mm. hyper-acutely. You know, the problem is that, um, you know, in non-medical settings, uh, when people don't have a lot of knowledge about what they're, they're doing there are uh, additional risks. And, and um, you know, the risks of a medicine are dependent on a lot of factors. It depends on the dose. It depends on the context of how it's used. So, you know, for example, if you take ketamine, it's, it's an incredibly safe drug. We give, uh, you know, I give 10 times the dose that we use in the clinic for depression to a four-year-old child in the emergency department for a broken wrist or something. So it's a very safe medicine, but when people use it recreationally, so one, they don't know about the frequency of use, the dose of use. Uh, There's risks that are, that have to do with the the purity of the drug. It's hard to, to, to get the right dose. You could take more, uh, which would put you in an altered state of consciousness that you're at risk for environmental trauma, for falling off something, for you know drowning in your bathtub, uh, things like that. And then you know if you people that take it recreationally, they take it more frequently than we would use in a medical setting. When you use it more frequently, you develop a tolerance. You use higher doses, and then you can have side effects that we don't have in medical treatment, like. Problems with your bladder, um, you know, other negative effects that when, you know, when that comes out and then somebody has a bad outcome, then it, yeah, it turns people's minds, you know, they think, oh, well, I heard about that guy that mm. died when they took it, or, you know, fell off something or that they had to have their bladder removed after getting addicted to it, mm. which, which aren't things that we see in the medical treatment mm. but you do see it in in uh recreational use so that that comes a little bit to the the concept of like you know what is a drug what is a medicine mm. and you know that's all about the context yeah. like you know in my medical bag i've got cocaine which we use for to treat nosebleeds we use alcohol as the antidote to antifreeze poisoning the you know green stuff in the front of your car I I once sent an ambulance to a, to a liquor store to get a bottle of vodka for a patient who was going to die of it and amphetamines they're drugs but we use them they're really effective for ADHD you know heroin is basically the same as morphine which mm-hmm. we use if your grandma breaks her hip she gets heroin in the hospital and mm-hmm. so so the the risks and um benefits of Of all these really context dependent, yeah.
0: What I heard a lot of people saying, and which is maybe my experience as well, is first going maybe to traditional therapy just to talk about it because in that phase you you get the help of acknowledging that it happened and then when you acknowledge that it happened and you figure it kind of like you, you start accepting okay this actually happened and it's easier to get to the next level but i don't know how that is with psychedelics do you feel that they have easier access to what actually happened because a lot of people that experience trauma just put it in a black box and actually don't know that it happened mm, or hasn't yeah. really accepted
1: yeah uh absolutely so you know you can go to much deeper levels uh with uh with this treatment uh that you know some levels that you didn't even know <laughs> were mm. there or you know the places that are really hard to go to when you're in a normal state of consciousness uh so so it allows you to go much deeper when you're describing that kind of put in a box it uh, reminded me of um, I had one one patient who um, described his after his first experience when he woke up afterwards and he was sort of said that he slowly dissolved in into the universe, just kind of became one of the trillions of atoms floating around the universe. he's floating in space. And there's nothing there. Um, And then he sees this black box, and it's just a black box floating in the universe. He kind of comes up to it and looks into the box. And inside the box in the corner is himself as a six-year-old child just curled up in a ball, scared and afraid. And he reaches into the box and, like, hugs this little boy and tells him that it's not his fault what happened. And, and then he becomes that child and he looks up at his 30 something year old self, giving him a hug Mm. and feels the warmth of the entire universe, just giving him the love that he did not get. And he woke up from this experience. I mean, literally just his first treatment an hour later, completely transformed in complete remission from the suffering that he had been in. And he continued to do treatment over time, but was never, he never had any symptoms after that. What kind um, of
0: symptoms did he have?
1: Well, he had a, a incredibly traumatic, um, childhood and, uh, he was suffering from severe depression and, and suicidal thoughts and, you know, in and out of the system and tried all kinds of medications. And so, so yeah, that's, that's an example of yeah. some, something that can, um, happen and, and it just, you know, his own consciousness did that. I, you know, we, I didn't, uh, plant that seed or Try to get him to go there to you know tell me about your childhood and um, his his own mind and the, the ketamine allowed you know opened the door to allow his own mind to do the work that it needed to do and and uh, his mind knew mm-hmm. where he needed to go and he went there.
0: I think that's so beautiful and I think that's one of the things that I am starting to see in the normal kind of traditional mental health system that there's like a dependency on the therapist that a lot of people kind of they go to the therapist and then they do the work there and then they go out and they haven't gotten any tools or they kind of they're they're being fixed by this person instead of kind of Mm. you know leaning on their self and Mm. like actually getting empowered by Mm. that someone tells you that you know the answer
1: yeah yeah absolutely we often use this uh, metaphor of, you know, when you break a bone, and uh, and we put a cast around mm. that that mm. broken bone, the cast is not healing the bone. Mm. Uh, your your own body does all the healing, mm. but that's sort of how the therapeutic framework works uh, mm. with what we do is. You know, for at least during the experience, it's, it's, uh, and before and after, it's, it's creating, uh, the, the safest, most, uh, you know, positive set and setting to allow that healing to happen. Mm. But ultimately, they're the ones that have to use those tools. I, I just think, I, I think it's really important that, that people know that, you know, this treatment is available for people. At, uh, you know, our, our clinic at Axon clinic, or there are many, you know, over the years since uh, we started, um, I've trained many people all over the country. There's, mm. uh, so it's available in the private mm. setting, which is expensive. How um, much does it cost? Somewhere, you know, depending on how much you do mm. around thirty forty thousand 40,000 kronor for like the whole process.
0: And how many sessions is that?
1: we recommend doing four uh, sessions starting out with at least four sessions with mm-hmm. the psychotherapy as well. But, um, you know, in the big picture, mm-hmm. if you have something that has a 70% chance of changing your life and you can get back to work and you can get back into positive, uh, healthy relationships and mm-hmm. that obviously it's incredibly, incredibly mm-hmm. worth it. But it's also available in in a limited capacity in the public system. So we started the public unit at Sikusostfold, and um, and you know we've helped hundreds of people there, and and we're in the process of make increase in accessibility. In the public system as well, so we're we've got a group of people at all the talk in in Norway, so that there'll be a ketamine unit in each region of Norway, um, and it's only a matter of time before it'll be you know more widely available in in all the psychiatric centers in in Norway because mm-hmm. it's so effective. So mm-hmm. it's just uh, once enough people know about it. Uh, it will be available, but that, I think it's, it's just important for people to know that, that if they or a, a friend or a family, um, needs help, there is something that can help them. Uh, and one thing that many say is, you know, and I had my friend known about that, you know, took his life five years ago or had, uh, somebody else, you know, you know, why did they have to suffer for so long? And, um, So that's why it's important for people to know about it.
0: Mm. I just really hope that this is going to flourish, that a lot of more people are going to take this in. Because I know a lot of people working as psychiatrists as well who are really exhausted by the system. Mm. So you have patients that don't necessarily get the help that they need, mm. that are kept in the system for too long, and then you have psychiatrists who also don't feel that the system works for them, so they become sick. Yeah. Um. So imagine if more of these people could work in this way. I know psychiatrists who's, who's just like, yeah, I have this patient; they're never going to get better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, um, you know, that's what you know, we become doctors and mm-hmm. healthcare providers, you know, because we want to help people. We want to see positive changes in people's lives. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, particularly in, uh, mental health, there, there hasn't been uh, a lot of new effective treatments coming out. So, so it can be, yeah, you, you feel like that the guy in the boat with the bucket is, you know? yeah. uh, It's incredible. I feel so thankful and everybody that works with us, uh, our clinic and also in the clinic in Trondheim, you know, for all of us, this is the most meaningful thing we've ever done to, you know, help people attain happiness and quality of life. And to see that on a regular, you know, every day that, that, you know not everybody but the majority of people mm. yeah you know, it's a, it's an honor it's incredible to to be able to participate in in this process with people mm. um so yeah very very thankful mm-hmm.
2: for that
0: Maybe talk a bit about the research and how it's going to impact. Is it going to impact how you work in the future, do you think? Uh, what do you figure out? And what kind of research do you do?
1: Yeah, yeah. So one of my roles, uh, in addition to working with the the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and Axon Clinic, and I'm the medical advisor for SIGFORSK, the Center for innovative uh, treatment uh, at Sikus Ostfold, and we have a number of uh, research projects going on. Um, the first project that we started with was with Compass doing their phase two trial for uh, psilocybin for depression. Unfortunately, that was stopped by the Staaten's work not because of any problem with the with the the study but they they wanted to change one of the uh the time points of the follow up and because it was an international study uh you can't change anything about the study cuz then they have to change it for mm-hmm. Germany and Portugal and the UK etc so uh so we couldn't continue with that after that we we did um a Phase 2 trial with uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, MDMA for PTSD, and they've recently completed the Phase 3 trials, which were necessary for the ultimate approval of uh, MDMA for, for PTSD in the United States, and then later will be approved in Europe. The exciting project we're working on right now Tor Morten kwam uh the psychiatrist at DPS Moss has a publicly funded um so sort of Norwegian funded trial on MDMA for depression and that's actually the first study the first pilot study in in the world uh for that indication and so that's ongoing right now
0: Did I have any results so far
1: or no results so far but uh it's a, it's a pilot so we uh sort of a, a preliminary study to to look at um in a small group of people if this uh, it looks promising or not and then and then after that you do a larger study to to confirm the efficacy and then we also have a funded project a, a PhD project on on looking at uh, long term effects of uh, ketamine treatment with the with the maintenance and we're collaborating with a colleague up in uh, trumps uh, on another ketamine trial looking at ketamine for depression in people with comorbid uh, alcohol use disorder so lots of exciting things and and the, the ketamine projects and the the MDMA for depression those are you know funded by the Norwegian government uh so that's exciting that we're finally getting some research here mm. yeah so it's exciting times and you know we have what is available now ketamine mm. and these uh, other drugs may come out in the next uh, couple years mm. And when they do come out, uh, they will be integrated into both, you know, public mental health care and uh, in our our clinics.
0: So you think all of the clinics that are already working with ketamine are going to extend when things new things become legal?
1: Yeah, maybe not all of them, but mm. uh, s- certainly, you know, that's what what we will be doing. You know, when it's if and when mm. the drugs are approved and and we know that, uh, that they have the efficacy that mm. we, that it appears they, they do. Then, um, you know, the, the model of, uh, ketamine assisted psychotherapy is, is very similar to the model of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Mm. MDMA is a little different, but, um, but there's many sim similarities and it fits well into you know the the, the model that we have in the clinic and to, you know it's not about the medicine the mm. specific medicine it's about having a set of tools that are helpful for different mm. different things and using the best tool for that individual patient mm. you know so so many of these are are effective for the actual, the same indications. Mm. But for some people, they might respond better to ketamine. Other people might respond better to one of the other drugs when they come out.
0: Mm. That's interesting. I saw, is it Australia and Switzerland at least has approved MDMA?
1: Yes. Australia uh, approved um, uh, psilocybin and MDMA this year. Mm. Switzerland has a program where they have psychedelics are legal in a very restricted uh, sense so they they uh, you can do an individual application for a particular patient hmm. and they've been doing that for a long time
0: I'm, um I'm at least excited I uh, I feel a bit like you did that there's so many people struggling with mental health issues and how the system is working right now isn't good enough mm. <laughs> so we definitely need to look at things a bit differently
1: absolutely and and it's also it's also a, a different paradigm a different approach where you know much of psychiatry is you know unfortunately a lot of it is symptom management mm. kind of palliative care like giving a benzodiazepine for somebody with anxiety it you know it calms them down mm. uh, but it's treating the symptom of yeah. the problem not the problem it's uh, it's kind of like you know you get a rock stuck in your shoe you can take paracetamol but if you could take that rock out of your shoe mm. that's a much better approach and you know
0: It's really strange for me talking about psychedelics on a podcast because it's only two years ago that I was so against drugs. Mm. It was like a whole year that I did research, I was listening a lot to Gabo Smato's Mm. work and just reading so much about it and it was a whole year for me to Mm. change my mind. For a lot of people it's a big switch and i think a lot of people might even be a bit triggered listen to this and maybe some people even won't listen to it because they're not ready and there's such a big scare in society related to drugs
1: (laughs) Mm, mm. absolutely uh and that's understandable but it you know goes back to the the, what is a drug and what Mm. is a medicine in the Mm. context uh, you know The history of the you know the classic psychedelics was that before LSD was discovered, we didn't know that serotonin was in the brain. Mm. So we knew that it was in the gut. Mm. Uh, that's where you get your MAGA full. Of mm. But the fact that uh, there was this um, serotonin agonist uh, that had these powerful effects, serotonin must also be in the brain. And then, of course, the discovery of serotonin in the brain was what. Eventually, later on, uh, led to the development of the SSRIs. What is that? Antidepressants. Okay, like Prozac or fluoxetine, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> for us who's not <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> into that, oh, hmm. that's interesting.
1: For people that are, you know, really new to this field. You know, a place to start is to know that ketamine, it's an approved medicine. At Sikusosfold, we have the first, you know, public ketamine unit in Scandinavia. The current leader of the Norwegian Psychiatric Association, Lars Lien, he came to our research uh, center. We talked to him about the, the research that we're doing with psychedelics. He looked at our ketamine unit and at the end of this, uh, visit, he said, you know, politicians are talking about, uh, all the, the whole academic field. We got to, you know, zero suicides. We need to do something to change, you know, new treatments. We got to put a lot of money into something new in mental health and nothing happens year mm-hmm. after year, no new treatments, nothing. And you guys are actually doing something here. And he said, Proven of Voris Foggfeld, your stolt of data. Mm. that, you know, that's coming from the leader of the Norwegian Psychiatric Association. So people that are kind of skeptical to this and ooh, that sounds like a little alternative. It's actually not. This is mm. evidence based medicine. That's great. Yeah.
0: Mm. <laughs> I um yeah. I'm glad to hear that you're changing the field
1: <laughs> yeah well it's incredibly important like uh, there's a lot of people who are suffering and um you know that's a whole nother conversation why why is why is there so much suffering yeah so my background is from this uh, evolutionary perspective mm. so i think that we have a pandemic of suffering that we're having right now is uh i think a large part of it is uh basically like a paleo deficit disorder. What is that? Um, a mismatch between the environment uh, that we live in and what's called the environment of your evolutionary adaptation. So in other words, you know, if if the timeline of, of human evolution, 99.999% of our time we lived in a very different environment you know small group of 50 100 people in a small tribe totally interdependent on each other really strong social interactions interdependence on the natural world connection to the natural world natural sunlight physical work and and literally over the just the microsecond of our evolution the last you know 500 years you know coming into these big cities in the last hundred years of, you know, people, most of your life is spent in a box, in unnatural light, uh lost connection to the natural world, lost connection to people, to, to real human interaction, that interdependence. And I think a lot of it is from, from that. There's a quote I like from uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti who said, uh, it's no measure of health to be well adapted to a sick society. Mm. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's a harder solution to (laughs) fix. Uh, Yeah. And there's a lot of things we can do there, but um, yeah.
0: Start dreaming. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Change.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I have decided that I want to be part of creating the future that I want to live in. Mm. And sometimes it's uncomfortable being part of that change and, and saying these things because some people might seem as naive and you know, like you're just one person, mm. but the fact is I'm maybe one person, but I talk to a lot of people, they talk to a lot of people. And I think with hope and believing that we matter, mm. things can change
1: absolutely yeah i agree
0: Mm. you're doing something so that's great
1: yeah we we need to do something
2: yeah
0: all right i think are you happy
1: absolutely Yeah. yeah thank you very much
0: thank you If you like this episode, I hope you also want to listen to some of my other episodes. They are both in Norwegian and English. And that you want to give me some good ratings so that the word can spread to many more people. And please share it to another friend or colleague or maybe a foe that you think could also benefit from hearing this story. And uh, if you are curious about me, you can always check me up. My name is Teresa Valentin. There are links in the episode description, both to my LinkedIn and my web page. I think that's about it. Have a good day.